1: Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thanks for downloading another episode of Scrum Again by The Attacking Scrum. This is our trawl back through the archives where we bring you some of our favourite interviews and episodes from the last six years while we're off having our uh, our summer break. Um, we are back however with some specials around the Wales South Africa series and uh, so yeah that will be back next week with uh, I guess a, a regular episode on uh, Monday the 4th of July so make sure you stay tuned. For that one um, if you're not subscribed to the attacking scrum already make sure you do that then you get a notification every time that we have uh, a new podcast available for you to listen to um, also if you're enjoying these then please leave us uh, a review on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever you get your podcast, that would be really really helpful and um, as i say we're looking forward to, to getting back to talking about some rugby um, on the pitch but in the meantime uh, to keep you in the mood, we thought we'd bring you uh, our interview with Sam Warburton from a couple of years ago. This was just prior to the to the twenty nineteen World Cup, so again, feels like a, feels like a lifetime ago, really. But it was really great to meet him. Uh, one of those occasions where they say don't meet your heroes, but it turned out to be um, it turned out to be just the opposite. A complete, absolute, absolute gent. Had loads of time for us, and was you know really nice to really nice to. Um, get him on the record and, and opening up. So this was just before or just after his autobiography came out. So um, yeah, there's a lot of chat about that, which uh, actually is, is well worth a read if you've not uh, if you've not done so already. It's not your average standard up and down sports autobiography. So yeah, get stuck into that if you haven't done so already. Um, and finally, yeah, a couple of, uh, couple of thanks to our sponsors at So Coffee Trades. If you want to get some great quality coffee, you can do that over at socoffeetrades.co.uk. Uh, right. Enjoy the episode. Find
0: space and outside is James Hook. So and two sure. too, with this support, hit three in the middle. Try surely for Wales. Warburton under the post. George North powering through, up to the 22, Uploads to his skipper, and Sam Warburton pinches his ears back and slides in. To...
1: Dual Lions captain, Wales skipper, Cardiff Blues flanker, and now. I'm delighted to say, Attacking Scrum guest, Sam Warburton. Sam, welcome to the show, how are you? Very good, thanks, how are you? Yes, it's fantastic to to have you on, here to chat about about your new book, which we're really excited to to get stuck into, really uh, thoroughly enjoyed reading that, and of course, plenty of other things to talk about with the Rugby World Cup on the horizon as well. Let's start with the book though. The book is called Open Side, and it certainly catches you in an open and honest mood. Was that the intention when you set out to, to write the book? Uh, it was always my intention I'm not sure whether
0: um, the, the publishers uh, Harper Collins, thought it was going to perhaps be that open and honest and um, obviously being open side flanker that's why it was called open side but originally it was uh, I think the plans call it something like too big, too fast, too strong mm. not necessarily me just the game about the collision sport and where it's going but I think once then they started getting the text back and seeing probably how uh, honest I was chatting about my career because I guess people think they see rugby players, you know, big alpha male, don't feel pressure, don't feel nerves, impenetrable, You know, got don't show emotion and that. Then when I was actually talking about how I perceived my career, like the ups and downs, then I thought, well, this is probably a bit more open and honest than we'd thought, which is where the name change to OpenSight came in, which I thought was really fitting, so that's why it's called OpenSight. But, um, yeah, perhaps a little bit more honest. I don't mind about showing... Perhaps the more vulnerable side mm. to myself throughout my, throughout my career, because I played like probably you know really hostile physical style, but you know I found it not all the time, but you know, parts of my career I found it psychologically you know very hard to, to play. So and physically, which is where obviously the
1: collision side of it comes into. So yeah, no, it covers a, a few bases. Perhaps you know you talk about the, I suppose yeah, the you know not being afraid to show some vulnerability there. Perhaps there's no bit more. Um, I guess where that's more at show than when you're talking about being on the eve of the, the second Lions test. Maybe just talk us through, you know without spoiling the book, yeah. kind of what was what was going through your mind at that stage? Oh, God. I, so when you're... Like playing for the Lions obviously the pinnacle,
0: like and it's all I ever wanted to do. And fans outside will look and be like, oh, these boys are living the dream. And you are. Like you, I know you are. And it's an amazing privilege to get there. But when you're there, you can't help but maybe... Maybe I was putting more pressure on myself than other players. I'm so desperate, so, so desperate to win that Test series and to be like a victorious team. But like that that eve of that Test, I was strapped, that game I was strapped up with like eight body parts both ankles, both knees, both shoulders, my hip, my elbow. I was just hanging on by a thread that tall and I just wanted to be able to deliver. I was worried I couldn't from a physical point of view. I was coming back from injury, so I didn't start the first. That's so why I was starting this game. So the pressure to play well, starting as a captain, um, was enormous. And all these things. I remember, just on the phone to my mum, and I was like, if there was, I just, and I was never going to do it. But I just felt if I could just escape this, just for twenty four hours, and just jump on a plane back home, like I, like I, I would, you know. And pro- probably wouldn't have if it actually really happened. But that's just how I felt. Like it was all just snowballing, but when you then go through the game and you can't the other side then it's completely worth all the negative stuff that you go through you just got to kind of like just see it through really but yeah I think people might see Lions Tours think that we're you know out on jet skis and having fun and having a laugh like on the DVD how that portrays then we play a game on the weekend then we go out and have a few more drinks again and I'm like that's really far from what a Lions Tour is actually about lots of travelling lots of pressure, lots of training, injury management, commercial and sponsorship opportunities, press, comp- like all day, every day. I remember it wasn't until about week five. We actually had a full day off with nothing. We could wake up in our beds that day and we could go back to sleep and have nothing. It was like five weeks, you know, And especially as me as captain having all the other responsibilities you've got to do. So obviously over the course of time, that just snowballs.
1: And it, it, you know, it got it bottlenecked, you know, in that evening for that second test. And the book has a theme of leadership running throughout. It obviously you touched on on some of that there. Why is it that you kind of chose to to concentrate on that rather than just being, I guess, a bit more of a like you. Know, perhaps the previous books were yeah. up and down, you know, rugby yeah. tales, really. Yeah, I think uh,
0: this has been much more enjoyable because, like, I've managed to go like delve deeper into the sort of like sort of talk about the mental side of the sport, um, then the leadership like lessons I've learned as well. Because I went into the like a leadership role at twenty two, like not wanting to do it. Um, nowhere near the best captain at that moment in time as well. And I had to learn quickly how to do it, and I changed my st- not changed my style, but um, I learned you know how to adapt like to, the, to certain situations along the way. Like I compare myself as a captain from when I was twenty seven, twenty eight when I finished, compared to 22. Oh, worlds apart. I like, worlds apart I was so much better towards the end of my career. But so yeah, so I talk about like the like leadership lessons I learned along the way, my principles of leadership, which I applied in my career, which hopefully can. You know, not just be um relatable to rugby players and captains, but to any sport or business leader or
1: whoever, you know, so I hope there's lessons for everyone to learn there as well. Yeah, it definitely comes across. And you know, you've spoken about captaincy and I guess a, a tricky relationship you had with it. You said you know, at the start of your career you hated Captain Insider. <laughs> yes. How how did that relationship change over the over the years? it's oh, a strong word, but I, I did hate it. Yeah. But you do it because it's such a
0: privilege. You almost feel like Embarrassed and like, like shameful. If if I was willing to turn down being captain for Wales or the Lions, you can't ever turn that down. But first Lions tour didn't want to do it, but you do it. You have to. Like Lions captain. Like, geez, how many times has anyone Lions captain? Like, you've got to do it. But then that that tour there was you know Paul Carl and Brian Driscoll, and I was thinking, like, surely those guys are better contenders. So I didn't really believe in myself um, like as a player. I always did, mm. but not as a captain. I didn't. But then in 17, I was completely different for New Zealand. I remember, even though I wasn't Wales captain at that moment in time, because I dropped the captaincy because I thought I just needed to focus on my form. I just needed to nail the Six Nations. Unfortunately, I did probably have one of my better Six Nations campaigns I've ever had. Then I was very comfortable to take that captaincy role because I knew I was playing well. So then I remember I was thinking like about Warren Gatland. I was like, oh please ring me because I'm I'm the best guy to lead this team to beat New Zealand. Because I was just like I felt it was my calling like to beat New Zealand, you know, for the Lions and helped that team do that, you know, I was desperate to do it. So, um, yeah, completely changed, like, psychologically as a captain from younger to older. And I guess the book kind of leads you through that a little bit, you know, and how I changed throughout, throughout the years with that. Do you
1: miss it, captaincy? No.
0: <laughs> no. I mean, like, so I still of said, which sounds quite strong, I didn't enjoy 80% of my career, I enjoyed only 20%. People might be like, well, that's an, that's very ungrateful. But I'm like, no, no, because the 20% I enjoyed outweighs the 80% yeah, I didn't enjoy yeah, yeah. tenfold you know but the 80% you don't enjoy who enjoys going on the internal flights every two three days yeah. travelling around the country all the time or doing constant sponsorship and commercial things or constantly speaking to media and press or going on the physio bed and having operations and injections and having blood drawn out of you and getting rid of inflammation and having MRI scans like, and then the stress it puts your family through and then not being able to walk the dog because everybody wants to stop you and ask you while you lost on the weekend like they're all the things that people don't see, so yeah, being a rugby player playing eighty minutes was incredible. I, I loved a hundred percent of that. I-, I wasn't ever nervous one minute yeah. from minute one to minute eighty. I loved that. I was never nervous because that, that was like your com- that's that's your comfort zone almost. But you're out your comfort zone. All the anxiety beforehand and then dealing with the aftermath of the game and all those things I mentioned. That's the bits you don't enjoy, but that's actually the majority of being a player. You know, so playing. The privilege of playing for the Lions or for your national team on, the, on, the, on your stadium in front of seventy-five thousand happens what ten times a year? Not even one percent of the time. So that's what I meant when I say yeah. that. So when I explain, it I think people understand a bit more. But this, this, the style with it sounds
1: quite drastic. I think there's a lot of. You know, there's a lot of sacrifice that you mention within the the book as well, and a lot about mentality, and you know whether that's uh, I, I kind of I've raised a little smile in, when it talks about 2011. You said you, you turned down a slice of your own birthday cake because oh, yeah, it was because it, it was a couple of days before oh, the the to... island quarterfinal. Yeah. <laughs> now, like you said, the reality is that yeah. that's probably not going to make a difference during the game, yeah. but mentally to you, it did.
0: Yeah, so oh god, yeah. I remember it. it was lovely. The squad uh, brought out the happy birthday thing, cake, all the time "Happy Birthday." I was like, "Oh, thanks." Yeah, cut it all up and didn't have a piece. <laughs> so I remember I was in a room with um, Luke Charteris going. When I was, mind you, as I got older, I realised oh, I can have a biscuit and a yeah. slice of cake, and it's not going to affect my performance. You know, if anything, you need it. You need to bang in some calories pre-match because <laughs> you need the energy, and particularly post-match, you, know, you expend like. I'm guessing. I have no idea. Four thousand calories in the game, maybe a match day. You you can eat kind of guilt free after a game, you know. But I was in, a, in my room on a Thursday before a game on a Saturday for Wales, and I was having a cup of tea with Dan Ligget and Lucaris. Uh, I was room with Dan, and Luke popped in for a chat, as you do in the evening. So we made a cup of tea, and he started dipping a shortbread into his cup of tea. Forty-eight hours from the game, And I wasn't even trying to be funny. And I remember, I remember <laughs> saying, "What are you doing?" And he said, well, you're going to eat that now, before a game? And he sort of looked at the biscuit, looked at me like... But at the time, I thought it was normal. Like, what like what are you on about, type thing. But I was so um, strict on myself about what I ate and how I prepared. I always sort of prided myself on being the best professional I could be. As I got old, I learned to relax a bit. Uh, and I would have a biscuit too <laughs> late from a game. But, yeah, I was very sort of, um, from a professional point of view, my mindset... I was very strict on myself. Because it just—it just gave me every single. I wanted every single possible edge I could get. You know, but that's just what I was
1: like preparing for. The game. And yeah, it's very, like, obviously very meticulous when it comes to your own training and preparation. And, and from what I can gather from the book and having heard you speak before, you wanted that to rub off on the squad. And it seemed kind of really evident in, in both those World Cup campaigns and on the Lions that you were kind of a lead by example captain and you wanted people to to follow that lead. Was that was that a fair assessment?
0: Yeah, it is, yeah. So you know, I just wanted to be the best professional I could be off the field and then I wanted to be the most fierce competitor on the field. So that was kind of, kind of like how I saw myself as like a leader. And then the captaincy, you obviously have to teach yourself and learn... Uh, how to communicate with referees, you know, you've got to get used to speaking in front of the group, you know, regularly as a captain and learning the tactics and, not learning the tactics, you all know tactics, but, like, there'll be front rows and front fives who don't understand kicking strategy, but mm-hmm. if you're a captain, you've got to understand the kicking strategy, wherever you are in the field, you know, which starter plays we're going to use in which areas of the field, which are things that you number 10s know, but you as a number, well, I was number 7, me as a captain... You have to know that and there's only a few players on the pitch who need to know that level of detail, which might be your number tens, your captain if he's not a line out caller, and then your line out caller, because your line out caller needs to call cool ball, which is gonna suit the starter play that your tens calling. So that's why you'll always see a quick conversation or when I always play anyway, you might be like myself, Anna Wynn Jones and Dan Bigger, I have a quick chat because Dan will say the starter play he wants to use. And win will, will think about which line outs will suit that and you can call your line out accordingly, and then as captain you've got to oversee those things. So but these are things which a captain has to do. Where if you're not a captain and you're just a number six or a front rower or a wick or a centre, you, you can just focus yeah. on your individual role in that start of play. But when you've got a captaincy role, you've got to like oversee all these things all game, all the time, as well as speaking to the ref. So that's how captaincy can kind of distract performance a little bit, and why there was times I wanted to take it away from myself because I just wanted to be the young teenage boy that I used to be, where I just wanted to go out and just be as fierce as possible and just just cause collisions and just like tackle and be aggressive you know that's my game there was times I wanted the captain stripped strip from me so I could just be that and go back into that little world again which I which I love but um yeah they're all the things I guess that
1: I explain about captain and um, we've touched on 2011 which obviously during that rugby world cup you led Wales to world cup semi-final now anyone listening to this will know what what happened there's some amazing highs and some you know some incredible lows during that tournament Looking back at it, are you able to kind of enjoy those highs and look at the the, the great win over Ireland, for example, yeah. rather than just thinking about the, the <coughs> semi-final heartache?
0: So my parents got that semi-final shirt. I remember at the end of that uh, World Cup, we had like a big squad signing session. So like we'd say, right guys, like ten items per player. Um, we've got a massive room in the team hotel set out. Like there was literally like I must have been thirty big circular dinner tables you can imagine, and we just put kit out and we went down on an afternoon off, and we just, like, everyone was there for hours, just signing everyone's kit so you can take it back home to yeah. family, friends, charity, whatever. I remember thinking, this shirt is probably going to be worth signing for the squad, <laughs> so um, I remember I took my shirt down as one of my items, I put it down, and everyone signed it nicely. So I went, I went home, and I gave it to my parents, you know, I was like, oh, it like, you was know, a semi-final shirt. So they've got it up in their front room, but they're like, um, oh, do you want know if you put the picture of you and Phantom Clerk in there? <laughs> so I was like, well, no, because... <laughs> When I come home, that's a shirt I led Wales to a semi final in, not the shirt I got sent off in, that's how I perceive it, you know. But then now I'm retired. I could I wouldn't mind if that picture was up there now, because when I'm playing, I don't want to revisit those emotions, you know, when I was playing and be reminded about that. But now I can see well it was like a it was one of the defining moments of my career and I wouldn't change it because not that I wanted to get sent off, but I think the success that we had the two years after that, from winning the Grand Slam, then winning another Six Nations the year after. Then having fourteen Welsh guys on the Lions tour and playing a test to beat Australia, had that red card have happened, you know, I don't know whether we would have had the two years after. Like sometimes you've got to go through a bit of adversity to come through mm. the other end, and it might have helped shape that team. So I've always been a believer things happen for a reason, uh, which is why I wouldn't change that red card. So now if they wanted to put that red card in, now I'm retired. I don't mind seeing it now. <laughs> I know it was probably quite a point, in, you know, point in my career and. I probably developed as a person massively from that. If one moment happened in my career that would probably be the one. So um, and I'm not ashamed of
1: it. I was probably a bit embarrassed of it when I was playing, but now I've learned not to be really. Because you, you talk about owning your mistakes in the book, and you know whether it's whether you agree it was a red card or not. Like you say, you didn't mean to get sent off. Was that how difficult a process was that to go through? It, it was difficult. Um, I kind of say like a story about everything I went through after that.
0: Um, but then, just uh, which obviously we haven't got time to do, but then, but to sum it up, what really put put it to bed for me was it was six weeks later, and I sort of explained on this, but six weeks later, I was doing another BBC interview. So, like, I mean, everyone was doing interviews yeah. from all over the country, coming down to the Blues Training Ground to speak to me on press afternoons and that. All wanted to know one thing about the red card, and then uh, they asked me one thing about the red cards again, like six weeks later, but that morning my granddad passed away, and uh, they probably wanted some really emotive answer mm-hmm. about. Uh, how devastating the red card was, and how many people I might have let down and stuff. But I just said that my granddad passed away this morning, and it and it finally made me realise that there's much more important things to worry about than the game of rugby. And that's what put it to bed. And then from then I was like, I just moved on because you re- you think when you're young and you're young twenties, you're breaking it through as a pro, and you don't have perhaps you don't have a partner, you don't have a girlfriend, whatever. You're probably living at home with a family. So you're not worrying about mortgages and bills and all that. All these real things that people have to worry about in life. All you're worrying about, you might not be studying, all you're focusing on is rugby, and you think it's your life, and it's the be all and end all, and that, like, it's all it's all you're about, it's all anyone is thinking about you, but really, like, there's so much more going on in life than that, and until you go through a little bit of hardship, really, to take yourself out of your little bubble, and actually gain some perspective over the real world, you know, that's when you realise, oh, what I'm going through is actually not as bad as it seems, you know, so that, that moment really put that red card
1: to bed for me. And fast forward four years, into Rugby World Cup 2015, led the, the side into that World Cup again, uh, including a, you know, a Titanic game at, at Twickenham. Something I've always wanted to ask you. What, you, brought, you brought it up, not me. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did what did Mike Brown say to you as you as you, as you <laughs> up? Um, yeah, I
0: so I Dan Lydia put in that huge hit on Tom Woods yeah. you know which people remember it was like that you see those NFL games where like somebody spins around 180 degrees you think how's oh, that ever going to happen and that's what happened with Dan and I can right, if I was on the England team I would have been angry of course I would but I was on the Welsh team so I was really happy because you know we you know asserted our authority And you know, when you're away from home and a team's going to try and like physically intimidate you when an opportunity comes where well, you've got to stand up for yourself you've got to do it as a 15 and just like all these little psychological wins, England needed to know that we weren't there to mess around, you know. And not that I ever wanted Dan to put in a dangerous tackle, mm. but I'm always going to back up my players. If it was dangerous and he put a shot into the head of someone, yeah. I'd be saying, "Mate, that's stupid. And you cost us." But like, in my eyes, he just went. He hit him so hard, and he did try and wrap. And I've been tackled by Dan, so I know. Um, I've seen players in the tunnel go up to him pre-match and say, "Please don't hit hit me in my knees like you have been." on other players because they're concerned for their health you know like he was a feared tackle, a defensive player so he just launched himself into Tom Wood and just the angle it was he tried to wrap him and Dan if you know Dan he's not a malicious guy mm-hmm. unbelievably fierce competitor but he's not a nasty guy which is why I backed him so we all went in and when I rush into those situations when everyone's getting on top of each other I'm actually the first time I'm shouting Is actually no penalties because I don't want anything to be reversed I'll give away three points so I'm not in there giving it the big one I'm not a fighter, I'm not that sort. Of, and you, what can you do these, this day and age now, I'm telling you like, yeah. you can't do anything in a game, it's all handbags so I'm just saying to anyone just like discipline, no penalties, don't want to reverse this don't want to give away two, three points I think we got another scrum for me, I can't remember but, and then I was just getting tugged on the back of my neck which I always ignore as it happens but I got tugged three times properly so I just turned around and be like who the hell is it, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm the pacifist here I'm trying to calm things down and then it was Mike Brown. And I just like I was just asking him politely, like, what on earth are you doing? Like, I'm just really trying to, like, sort things out here. And you're just adding fuel to the fire. Um, but, yeah, you know, I... I, just, I mean, it went viral back over Wales. But I'm just thinking, um, and he knows this himself, like you know when when you're playing games and you 're behind your forward pack it's very easy to be brave, you know yeah um so yeah, just something along
1: along those lines <laughs> <laughs> and winning that game with you know with half the back line injury, there was massive injuries going into the, i was in that i was at that that game in Cardiff before the the tournament when when webb and uh, and Halfpenny got yeah. injured yeah. And then during that one game, to have all of those injuries happen almost at the same time—how much of a test of your leadership was that at that point? You know, was that sense of belief always there that you could go on and win this game? I think that's what Wales have. Like we've always—I think Gatland has instilled in us—is that
0: resilience. Um, So yeah, the the injuries were a joke, and had we had won so that England game, obviously we we were littered with injuries. I don't know how. Like looking back, I'm like, we should never have won that game. England's home record in Twickenham is incredible. Anyway, they got a great home home ratio, win ratio. Never mind the added emotion that it's a home World Cup game. I look at the injury. Like how do like at the time? I didn't appreciate it because it was just one more step on the ladder that we had to complete just to get to a World Cup final. So it's only in hindsight I look back and I think, "Geez, that's probably one of Wales' biggest ever victories in the history of Welsh rugby." Like it was a momentous occasion, but at the time. So say like 2013 when we beat England 30.03, we can enjoy that, mm. it's the finale, it's the end of a tournament, you can have a drink and enjoy it, we won something, but this was just another group game, so we had to get ready for Australia within 6-7 days, so you can't really, you can enjoy it, but you have to move on from it pretty quick, you know so I didn't enjoy it perhaps like I should have, but now I look back, I have no idea how like we got through that game, given the circumstances, and I kind of talk in the book really, was the sleep deprivation, because... I don't know if oh, you might remember it was in the news, but yeah. I was in a room with Dan, and he was adamant we had a ghost in our room, and I can't like go into that. So I didn't sleep for two days. Um, but yeah, so add it all together, I literally have no idea how we won that game.
1: And you know, again, a lot of the, the uh, as I said throughout this, kind of so much of the book is about mentality and and getting those those wins in massive games. I suppose Wales in during your your tenure as captain. Mm-hmm. The question mark was always over beating the Southern Hemisphere sides, and a lot of the press were kind of always quick to say that that was down to a mentality and a sense of belief. Was that fair criticism, or you know, were, were they down the wrong lines at those, posi- those um, points? Maybe.
0: So I always said, and I was quite honest. I remember when I was playing and we hadn't beaten Australia for like ten games row mm-hmm. or something, and then like, is it a psychological thing? I'm like, well, no, because we've beaten England we've beaten France and like, we, we had a good running in South Africa we beat South Africa like four times now you know in the last five so since 14 the last five years so we've seen teams who can beat Australia that we can beat on many occasions so the psychologically, psychologically I don't think that's it I was like they've just been better than us like, I, do, I don't think you're unlucky 13 times in a row yeah. 12 times in a row they were obviously just that little bit better there were some games which were desperate how we lost and like oh they were horrendous losses to have Last minute penalties, last minute, last second tries, but they were obviously just a little bit better. But I do admit, I never had a belief problem. Um, but you don't know for sure what's going through players' minds, so that's why I think the lines are different to Wales, mm. perhaps. Maybe for Wales, out of the 23, maybe I, I know when I look at Alan Wynn and Toby Falatow and Jamie Roberts and John Davis and George North and the halfpenny and Adam Jones getting Jenkins, I know they believe they can beat anyone in the world. But can I say that about the whole 23? Like, I don't actually know. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe those doubts might creep into a younger, more impressionable person's head. But for the Lions, when you're in New Zealand, you've got 23 of the most competitive animals in the British and Irish Isles, all in one changing room. Every one of those guys genuinely believes, wants to, and just expects to beat New Zealand. But, you know, the psychology is a lot different when you've got all those guys in one room, which is why I think the Lions did so well. Um but can I say that on behalf of the whole Welsh team? Like, I can't say yes or no. I, I don't know, and maybe that was a reason. But I think that was combined with the fact that we obviously weren't quite good enough on those days. As well.
1: And it kind of, you know, you mentioned a lot of those those leaders in there now. Some of them still playing, some of them retired. And on paper, you know, looks a squad even right now full of leaders. You know, you add Dan Bigger and, and Ken Owens into that list. Are there any kind of emerging players that you've seen either through punditry work or you know, connection with the Blues? That are going to be the you know the future leaders of Wales, the ones who are, are going to be doing that that real strong leadership job and driving the team forward. I think um, a player who's been great in the
0: Northern Hemisphere, and if you've been watching Six Nations and Auckland Internationals, you know about him. Josh Navidi has been brilliant mm-hmm. for Wales, and he's been brilliant for the Blues for about like six, seven years, but for ages. But Wales, we've had sevens coming off conveyor belts, yeah. so he's, you know, he's obviously have to wait his time to have an opportunity. But he's been playing. Um, and he's been brilliant for Wales. And I think this World Cup could be a real platform to him to announce himself. And I've sort of said before, um, I, really, I think someone like Tom Curry is going to be that kind of player who's going to play for England and really announce himself as like a world-class back rower. Sam Underhill is similar. They've got those abilities. But you need, a, like those boys have already played well at Six Nations and already played well at Autumn Games. But when you do it on the world mm-hmm. stage at World Cups... Or Lions tours. That's when you cats put yourself into genuine world class status, you know. So I reckon those boys can do that this World Cup.
1: How aware are you of that? That step up in intensity when you're on those. I mean, obviously you, you mentioned a bit about the the Lions tour there, but you know when you went to when you went to 2011 as a 22 year old, how aware were you of the magnitude of what was happening? So like being in New Zealand is if, any, if any is better. Like mm. 2011, all the press was on New Zealand
0: because you know they hadn't won a World Cup since. 87. Yeah, yeah, 87. So, like, the pressure on them was incredible. So, they were always called the bottlers and everything. So, we went in under the radar. So, for us, like, we had no, like, your Twitter feed's a bit busier than normal. And back then, so I was 11, I remember, I, remember, I think I was a kiddie when I hit 5,000 followers. Like, you know, I was like, you know, social media was nothing compared to what it is now. So, like, your social media feed might be a little bit busier than normal, but like, nothing really. You don't get what's going on at home. Which is why then in 15 I realised, because it was like a whole World Cup, we played a couple of group games in um, Principality and a couple in Twickenham and stuff, and that was then enormous. So I think Japan seems like that now, it seems like there's like, with the world nowadays, everything's so much more accessible with social media and press and all that. I think boys will go out there now, some of the younger guys who've had, this will be their first big tournament, World Cup of Lions, and they'll go out there and dealing with that as opposed to being in say if you're an English player being in Penny Hill Park mm. you know with your normal food normal training regime you can pop home you know stuff like that when you're away in Japan and then you've got all this pressure all this hype around you and then you can still deliver you know that's the different sort of psychological challenges that you have you know in World Cup so when players can rock up and play at home yeah great well done but it's going away from home out of your comfort zone and playing up and rocking up that's when I think you get your genuine world class status
1: and heading into this world cup very different role for you you know your new career as a a pundit how you know do you kind of apply that same kind of professional ultra professionalism that you had as a player do you do the same thing with with punditry, you know, you watching games twice over and yeah. and memorising the you know, the Russian the Russian back row forwards <laughs> names and, and <laughs> yeah. all these kind of things. Yeah. I, I want to make sure that I can be quite insightful. Yeah. So I make sure like say you get given
0: loads of stats and out of the stats I might not think ninety percent are relevant, but ten percent I, I read them all because ten percent of them will be good. I think, oh actually that is specific and I might drop it in somewhere if it's necessary. But yeah, I make sure I watch my games. I want people to watch to I always see it as like an education type coach type thing where I want to actually if someone can listen to me and hear something I say about a driving line out or a kick chase or a breakdown and they think oh I didn't realise mm. that and they learn something which, or they might be like take it back to their team and coach them that or somebody might be going oh I didn't realise that's why they did that then that's like a win for me so I kind of see it as that sort of role so I want to be able to like educate people rugby's complicated game like it is complicated I want people to understand why we do that so many times people say oh we kick too much I'm like who's the best team in the world? And they say New Zealand. I'm like, they kick the most out of anyone in world rugby because there's a strategy behind kicking. So, as an example. So, yeah, I quite like explaining all these things. So, I like the challenge of it. The only difference is... I still consider myself like a good professional doing it. Like, I wouldn't ever just want to just turn up and just blag a game and talk about it, you know. But the only difference is I'll just eat my body weight in chocolate while doing it, (laughs) which is lovely. So, I don't have to be so strict on my diet. So... It's nice. I can eat a nice. I can have a nice bag of minstrels bit of Harry boots, or chocolate, and that. When you're back on air, just clear the table, put it back by your feet,
1: and then when you're off air again, I can pick them all back up again. That's the only really difference, true Because uh, you, know, you know, given how intense your career was, you'd be, you know, you could be forgiven for going. Actually, do you know what? I want to, I want to leave rugby behind now and go and do something different. Was that ever an option, or did you think, no, you know, I'm. Um, um, I want to start, I want to stay in this game and, and experience a different side of it yeah no that's a good question because that's actually exactly
0: how I felt I remember thinking oh, I just want to get get away from this game like it's just I've had I remember when I used to play I was like I could never coach like but then when you're playing it's because when you're playing you want to get away from it on your days off I never would have wanted to analyse any more than I had to but then so when I finished, I had about two or three months. I did nothing involved with the game. I knew I was always going to do something, but for two or three months, I enjoyed doing nothing. It was a really nice getting away from the game of rugby. But as the longer I'm away from it, the more I'm actually like, you realise how much you love the game, and you realise how why that's why you got there in the first place. And I feel like well, I can give back. Like there's so much I know. I feel like I feel like I'm only scratching the surface when I talk to people about like rugby. I want to be able to like go to a young back rower and just give him everything that's in my brain so he's got that from the age of twenty, twenty-one. Um, so yeah the longer I'm out the more involved I actually feel like getting but originally initially so out of time and I was enjoying like, time with the family and away from the game but now naturally
1: everything I'm doing I'm just gravitating closer and closer back to the game which is great Sam, it's been amazing to speak to you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for opening up with us. And, uh, yeah, we uh, well, hopefully we'll, we'll get you back on the attacking scrum at some point in the future as well. No, thanks for having me on. Great to chat to you. Thanks. Cheers.